Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up with his, by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Uh, late 80s hip-hop trio, salt and Peppa was known to sing Let's Talk About Sex Baby. I'm not going to carry on with the rest of their song, but that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> we're going to talk about sex and sexuality. And here's the challenge of talking about this as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, is that I am very concerned and desiring, my aim is to be clear, okay, very clear, and I want to uh, help to you to understand and to cultivate a coherent theology. It's one of my goals in life as a pastor, in my own life spiritually, it's to have integrity of thought across scripture and how we live it out in life. To not approach something one way in one passage and another and another, to have integrity of thought and to be coherent. So I want to be clear and have a coherent theology. I'm also hoping and praying, and I've been praying, that, that this space in here, and even how I approach this, would be filled with humility and generosity and grace. Very often this topic is not done that well, and in that sense I want it to be thoughtful. Um, here's one of the things that I'm very aware of, sex, and talking about it is a complex issue. Not just today, it always has been, but especially today. And it's very personal. Um, in fact, a sermon is probably not the best setting to have these discussions. A one-on-one -on -one or a three-person, four-person conversation is probably the better thing. Um, and so if after hearing stuff today you want to follow up, please let me know. I, I feel like it's a much easier conversation in person, and the one direction is not the best way to go about it. But God has called me to preach God's word, and I stand on that this day. Another thing that I need to say is more of an admission and a confession is that the church and Christians have not approached sex and sexuality very well. They certainly have not done so historically. There is uh, a lot of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Um, many instances of just hateful meanness. And the church and Christians, in the name of sexual faithfulness, 
have caused a lot of evil. Um, at at the, the least bad is the selective condemnation of sexual sins, elevating sex as a problem above everything else. You know, when Jesus dealt with a woman caught in adultery, he did deal with her sexuality and said, go and sin no more. But he was primarily shining a light on the Pharisees' self-righteousness. The church has done a great job of shining light on sexual immorality and not on self-righteousness, to name dozens of other ways of breaking God's purposes. In addition to that, as has been common in the news, many people have experienced pain and abuse at the hands of the church. People that they trusted have broken that trust. Children have been abused. And if the statistics bear out, some of you have experienced that. We are a culture and a people in need of healing. On top of that, pretty much everyone in here has some version of guilt or shame from their sexual past or present. Things that we just are horrified by, that we feel guilty about, things that were done to us that we participated in, and we need to know forgiveness. We do. And finally, the church has dealt very poorly with singleness, especially the Protestant church. Faithful singleness has not been something that has been upheld or even made plausible. We've elevated the nuclear family at the expense of humanity and wider relationships. And we've called people to faithfulness without providing the relational structures that are necessary to make that plausible. The church and Christians have not acted like Jesus. And many people have been hurt, including many of you. And for that, on behalf of the church and Christians, I am sorry. And so before we even enter in, I wanna pray, because I feel like we need to hand this and ourselves over to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as I speak today that you would grant me humility that we would hear truth where it is true and that our hearts would be open to being transformed. And I pray, God, for a lot of healing and grace and hope because you are the God of life, of eternal life, of love, and of hope. Help us to see the truth and in your truth, the hope of life. Amen. So the question you have to start with whenever you're talking about anything like this is what is the basis? What is the basis for how you live? What do you use? How do you determine what is good or right or true? What is your foundation? What authority do you stand on? So one way, one primary way, which we do today and was also done in Corinth, is self-discovery. Paul records in verse 12 of chapter 6 a phrase all things are lawful for me. He says it more than once, but all things are lawful for me was a Corinthian maxim. Basically, the culture said this. It was like, all things are lawful for me. Come on, we all know this. The NIV translates it, I have the right to do anything, anything I want. I have the right to do anything I want. Corinth, as a city in the first century, was a very cosmopolitan city. It was socially progressive and sexually liberated. And it was liberated in most other ways to a very free society. 
And people believed in that Greco-Roman world and in that culture in particular of Corinth that they had the right and the power to do whatever they wanted. And that's not much different than, than today, right? We have a different set of maxims. It's not uh, all things are lawful for me. It's you do you. Or you need to find the true you. Or if it makes you happy. Do what you want so long as it makes you happy and you're not harming anyone else. And that's the, the starting point of self-discovery in our world today. The Corinthian church that Paul had planted had borrowed this view from its culture and mixed it with the gospel. And that's why he's quoting, Paul is quoting, all things are lawful for me because basically the Corinthians held the view that you could do what you want because Paul had come in and preached the gospel, which was you're saved by grace, not by following the law. And so these Corinthian Christians were like, great, let's throw out the law of God, all those commandments. We don't want to do those. It's by grace that we're saved. So we can do whatever we want just like the culture around us. And then Paul turns it a little bit. He doesn't say, no, you can't. He says, the second half of this phrase, not all things, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. The NIV translates it beneficial. So maybe you can do whatever you want, but is everything that you want good? That's what Paul's asking. And so we should be asking, how do we decide? How do we decide what's helpful or beneficial? What is good for me? What is good for others? Is it do what you want and whatever makes you happy? Or is it so long as everyone else says it's okay? It's what everyone does. Is that what makes something good and beneficial? As long as you don't harm somebody, of course. But Paul is making it clear in this passage that God alone, God alone determines what is beneficial. It's not self-discovery, you figure it out, but it's understanding and living into God's revealed purposes. The God of the Bible is self-revealing. He has revealed his purposes and his will. He reveals himself in creation. It's even inscribed into our bodies, in our conscience. He reveals himself in the word of God, Genesis to Revelation. We find out about God here. We find about, about God and what he has revealed in creation and in the scriptures and ultimately in Christ, the incarnate God who walked this earth, died for us, and rose again. And all of that, creation and scripture and Christ, are known and understood by the church, Christians throughout history and around the globe, not just me as an individual Christian. So Christianity holds, and Paul is trying to cite, that God reveals himself. We find ourselves and life to the full in him, which means our identity and our purposes understanding what's good and right and true have been revealed by God. This is not something that I need to discover on my own or live into what makes me happy. So think about this, it's just to contrast kind of our self-discovery way versus the Christian revelation. Why is stealing or murder wrong? 
Why is stealing or murder wrong? And you would say, well, duh, it's wrong. But if you actually play out why is it wrong, the answer might be because it's against the law. The law says if you steal or if you murder, that's wrong. Or you might say, uh, when you're murdering people, you don't feel good about yourself. So your feelings constrain you from stealing or from murdering. Or uh, evolutionary biologists would actually say something along the lines of, throughout the, the centuries, millennia, thousands and millions of years, we have evolved into a people who don't steal or murder because biologically that helps us to survive as a species. Stealing and murdering cause chaos and death and we won't survive as a species. But let's take you know, kind of an extreme caricature of an example. Let's say instead of living today, 21st century, let's say instead you are a European settler in the frontier of America in the early 1800s. What is to keep you from stealing land from and murdering Native Americans? There you are, out far out into the Midwest, and you want land. Are your feelings going to keep you from doing it? Are what, what's normal and everyone else in the culture is doing, is the law going to keep you from doing it? There's actually nothing that would hold you back. So is or was that wrong? Who says? Christianity makes the claim that God has revealed what is right and true in Scripture and in Christ. And stealing and murder are wrong. Because God is our Lord and we are made in his image and he has revealed himself that we are not to kill or take from others, but to trust God and to encourage life. Like these are things that God has revealed. And so regardless of the culture we live in or the laws of the land or how you feel, God's revelation says this is not okay. True freedom and fulfillment are not found in doing what I want or feel. It it may feel that way, but it's in knowing God and living into God's calling and intention for life. So what is God's calling and intention when it comes to sexuality? What is God's view as revealed in scripture and in Christ and in creation as understood by the church historically and globally The Christian view on sex is clear. Sex is meant to be confined to a lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman with the possibility of new life. One man, one woman in a lifelong covenant with the possibility of new creation. Christianity roots this sexuality in the creation narrative and God's design from the beginning. It's why Paul cites Genesis 2, the two became one, you will become one. So we ask the question, uh, going back to creation, the creation narrative in the Judeo-Christian understanding, why did God create? Okay? In, the, in Theology of the Body, John Paul II describes the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, in eternal loving union. That eternal loving union of three persons, one God, births 
creation. God's nature, God's love, are revealed in creation, in humanity in particular, and even in our sexuality. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that in the image of God, he made them male and female. There is gendered diversity as a reflection of the three persons of the Trinity. And he calls them, in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The creation mandate of that gender diversity is to participate in creation, in co-creating, in bringing new life to bear. God doesn't create all the billions of the people. He creates the two and says, and now you participate as my image bearers. And in the description of what is happening when they come together, in chapter two, we read the two become one flesh. Two distinct persons, distinct in their gender, in their physicality. They come together physically, but not just physically, they come together as one. And in that sexual act, they are consummating their lifelong exclusive commitment to one another. And they are naked and not ashamed. The most beautiful statement in scripture. They are completely known. They are naked physically, emotionally, spiritually. They're not hiding anything. Their finances are out in the open. They are one. They are naked. They are known. They are loved. Sex is meant to reveal and reflect God. Gender difference, male and female, is integral to this. It images the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit in Trinity, the diversity becoming one. The diversity is one, we become one. Sex is a lifelong commitment of oneness reflecting the eternal unity of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally one. In marriage, you come together as one for life. And sex is ultimately not about getting something. It is a gift of your body to your spouse, a gift of love that consummates the covenant and brings about the possibility of new life, new creation. And in this sense, it reflects and carries on the work of creation from the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, birthing creation. There's a powerful calling, in other words, to sex within the confines of marriage. It is a higher calling than the sex that we live out in our culture today. But ultimately, sex is not the answer. Getting it, avoiding it, what it you know, the, the, the claim here that Paul is laying out too is that we are made for more than sexuality. We are made for God and we are made for one another in relationship. Genesis 2.18, God declares it is not good for the man to be alone and so he makes a helper, which basically means a complementary other person. Somebody that together you become one in a way that by yourself you cannot and more fully reflect God and because you are made to be in relationship. We are made to be in relationship, which 
in, is inscribed in us with this deep desire for intimacy and depth of relationship. Our culture and we ourselves have elevated romance and sex as the answer to that desire. And we often confuse intimacy with sex. Intimacy is to be open and vulnerable and trusting, of which sex within the confines of marriage is an expression of it, but it is not necessary for intimacy. Our true longing, our true longing is to go back to Eden, to be naked and not ashamed. To be naked, totally known by somebody else or other people. We want people to know us fully, not hiding anything. We really long for that. We want to be known fully and not have somebody laugh at us or reject us or be bored by us. We want them to love and accept us. That desire to be naked and not ashamed with one another does not need to be expressed sexually in order to be achieved. Sexuality is rooted in creation and finds its fulfillment in reflecting God's purposes. But in Christianity as well, our bodies and our sexuality find their deeper meaning through the incarnation. I'm going to read more extensively again some of the passages, some of the passage that, uh, that Sheila read earlier just to set the context of how the incarnation and the elevation of our bodies and our calling. Paul writes, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Another quote, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's pointing ahead to the resurrection and eternal life. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's talking about how when you come to faith in Christ, you you have union with Christ. Christ dwells in you. And when we act in sex in any way, we're, we're cementing a union with another. And then he goes on to say in verse 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The Spirit dwells in us. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the fullness of what Paul is getting at here is that as human beings, we are psychological and physical and spiritual beings. The the Greek culture elevated the soul, the spirit, but they denigrated the body, which is why they didn't care. You could have sex with whoever you wanted as long as you went to, you know, did your religious practices. Because what you did in the body doesn't matter. So they elevated the soul, but not the body. Modern day people don't generally believe in heaven or in the spiritual world. They actually don't at its realm. We think the only way to get life in satisfaction is here and now. Only what I do in the body matters. Christianity comes in and says both matter your physical body and your emotional self and your soul and your spirit, you are an eternal being and your physical body is a part of that. So it elevates the physical and the spiritual, the now and the eternal. One commentator wrote this, 
when we have sex with somebody, sex, is establishes, sex establishes a relationship, even if those involved seek to avoid the emotional and relational commitment that sex is meant to consummate. The act of sex is not just a physical act. There's a spiritual and a psychological connection. Very often the way we approach sex is I want you physically, but I'm not really interested in you emotionally. I want you physically, but I don't want to commit to you financially. I want to know your nakedness, but I don't want to know all your business. And we divorce something that actually can't be divorced according to God. The physical and the spiritual and the emotional and the life are there. You will become one flesh. There are long-term spiritual and and long-term spiritual and implications for our sexuality and how we act on it. Let me give you an example why those of you who have any experiences, um, you can forget people that you played on a team with in middle school. Like you were on their middle school Babe Ruth team or you know, like this kid was on my house basketball team. I, if some kid came up to me and said, oh yeah, we were on the same ha- house basketball team when we were eight, I'd be like, okay. Um, but you will not forget somebody that you've had sex with or engaged in sexually. There's something else going on there. There's something more powerful than a physical act that is happening. And that's because our bodies are not just pieces of, of dirt and blood and you know they decay when we die. Our bodies are sacramental meaning an outward and visible sign of the glory of God, pointing to who God is and what he's done. Our bodies are a visible sign revealing God and his love for creation. And God inscribed his image in our gendered, sexual, physical bodies. And we know this because God, when he decided to save the universe, took up flesh he became a gendered human being and he entered creation as a body. And when Jesus is walking the earth, he walks the earth as a body. He dies as a body. He is raised as a body and he sits at the right hand of God Almighty. He is the Lord of the universe as a body. The Lord of the universe has one of these. if he's a first century Jew, I'm probably taller than him by a little. We have been united with Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and we will be raised to new and eternal life physically. What we do in our body can declare the wonders of God. What we do with our bodies can declare the gospel We can eat and sleep and work and play and use our sexuality and our conversations and all of these things can cause us to worship God or to worship something else. What we do in our bodies matters spiritually and eternally. Now all of this is hard 
why is the Christian view on sexuality so hard to believe and follow? It's so hard because we are fallen people. We are spiritually fallen, but we are not just spiritually fallen, right? This, this creation is fallen and broken. We are emotionally fallen. We are physically fallen. As you get older, you realize how physically fallen you are. Our genetics are fallen. My desires, the wants of my heart are broken and fallen. We cannot fully live out the things that God calls us to very easily. And on top of that, we have dealt with much brokenness in our lives. So when we're talking about sexuality, many of us have dealt with pain or wounds or guilt or shame. There's been a lot that we've experienced and we almost don't wanna go near any of this. It's too hard. There is not a human being alive. There's not a human being that does not need forgiveness and healing when it comes to our sexuality. All of us need to know we are loved. This is a particular challenge. There's a particular challenge and cost to living this out in faithful singleness as well. And it becomes more acute in same-sex attraction. That desire to be faithful means celibacy outside of marriage. Lifelong faithfulness. And the church has failed singles. We'll talk about singleness and marriage in two weeks, but the church has failed singles because we have elevated the nuclear family, tried to get people married off, and we have not cultivated deep and wide relationships that make faithfulness possible and plausible because there is intimacy and being known and loved, whether you are single or married, have kids or don't. But the calling to singles is the same calling as to married, is to find your identity and your hope in Christ, to have your longings met in the one who loves you and died for you. And this is a hopeful thing too. Look, it may not feel that way entirely, but think about it. God called us to something in creation. He is elevating our bodies, saying the life that you live, who you are as male or female, the way he, is, he has given you your body is a part of a gift to you. And a, your gift is to be that gift to others, to give yourself to others. But ultimately, it's also a sign of hope because sex and our body find their hope and calling in the kingdom of God. In verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the gospel right here. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Jesus entered creation in a body, and he gave up his own rights. He allowed himself to be whipped so that you can be healed, to be nailed so that you can be forgiven, to experience death so that you can know life. You were bought with a price which is the description of redeeming a slave. His death, his physical death, his spiritual death on the cross brings us freedom. You have been washed and sanctified and made right before God. 
And God is saying, you are accepted as you are. I, I accept you. Come to me and live out of the confidence of that acceptance and love. And he goes on to say in verse 20, the end of it, so glorify God in your body. Do not be dominated by other things. You know, one way or the other, we are going to worship something. And that word uh, dominated is the word in master, it's in slave. And the Bible talks about God and gods as a worship issue, as something that will master us. Who is your master, right? And we know this is true about sexuality and about sex, that sex has the power to master us. And, and the place this is most obviously seen is in pornography. Pornography is the epitome of a Western view of sexuality. It is completely free and autonomous. It seemingly harms nobody. As an individualist seeking happiness and pleasure, it gives us everything we want. But according to how God has made us and inscribed in us and called us into relationship, it is the least relational, the most debasing of the human body. It's not sacramental. It's objectifying. And as any of you know, as any of us know who've, who've stepped into it, it has the power to addict and rule us. It rewires our brains, and causes us to desire more and more. It becomes a God, something we worship. Instead, God says, take your bodies and your sexuality and lay them before God and worship God with your body and your sexuality. In marital monogamy and in faithful celibacy, in both of those, you can glorify God with your body. You and I are sons and daughters of God. That means our citizenship, while we live here in America or wherever you travel, our citizenship, our ultimate home is with the Lord. But he is unfolding his kingdom already in this creation. And we find the fullness of life living in his kingdom fulfilling his purposes for us. Not in doing whatever we want, even if it seems right, even if I want it. C.S. Lewis gives us that great wisdom that we've read here more than a dozen times. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. God made us. He has redeemed us and he calls us to know him and experience him fully. Give your body your sexuality, your desires, your loves, your relationships. Give everything you have over to God and his purposes. And forget the mud puddles and find life to the full. Let's pray. God, I know 
that in this place, every one of us needs your healing and forgiveness and grace. And I pray even as we've talked about this, that you would wash over us with your love for us, your mercy, your acceptance of us in our brokenness, that there is not a thing that has happened to us that cannot be raised, a thing that we have done that cannot be washed. And you offer us hope, Lord, and we need that. We need the hope of life and life to the full. So come, Holy Spirit, and dwell our hearts and minds and lead us, lead us in the way that is everlasting. Amen.